Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the place where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. My guest this week is a totally extraordinary woman. She has a PhD, she's an author, she's a rabbi and a midrashist, she's a mystic, a poet, an essayist, and a Hebrew priestess. Rabbi Dr. Jill Hammer is the Director of Spiritual Education at the Academy for Jewish Religion in New York, and she is also the co-founder of the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute, which is a programme in spiritual leadership for Jewish women. In her own words, she is committed to an earth-based and wildly mythic view of the world in which nature, ritual and story connect us to the body of the cosmos and to ourselves and she has been called a Jewish bard. I met her when I taught at the Rowe Institute in Massachusetts last year. We were each teaching separate courses at the same place, and on the penultimate evening we sat down and talked to each other in one of those conversations that could have lasted a year. So I've been hoping that I would be able to talk to Rabbi Jill as part of the podcast since then, and this is our first opportunity. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Everybody out there in podcast land, please welcome Rabbi Jill Hammer. So Rabbi Jill, welcome to the podcast. It is such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. And our our first question that we always ask for people that we're interviewing down the line is, what is most alive for you in this moment? What's most alive for me in this moment is that I'm getting some beautiful opportunities to connect people to their source, to the world, to the all. And that's really a great joy for me. I'm really excited to be in community with people who are excited about uh, being in connection in some of the ways that our ancestors knew that we often have lost. Yes, thank you, indeed. And and because you're a rabbi, ancestral work, you have a direct lineage back for 2,000 years which or more, which is often something that we in the West don't have in the, the other ways of connecting. So what I'd really be interested in, if, if you could tell us a little bit about how you became a rabbi in the first place, because my understanding of rabbis is fairly limited, and I am not familiar with most of them being interested in connecting to the natural world in the way that you are. So could you tell us a little bit about what drew you into where you are today? Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in the Hudson Valley uh, in New York State. My parents were not particularly religious Jews, but they were interested in gardening. And so I spent a lot of time out in the natural world. And as I got older and began to connect to the Jewish community and, and, and learn with teachers, um, I went to college. I took a lot of uh, courses um, in Jewish studies. I really fell into this deep connection to Jewish text, which is a way that lots of uh, Jews engage uh, with, with the divine, with uh, their uh, people, is through uh, reading sacred sources and discovering what they mean and arguing about what they mean and... And so both of those really continued for me in a kind of parallel track. 
Uh, I was really interested in this process of interpretation and adding new voices uh, to the ancestral tradition. And at the same time, I would go outside and I would feel a very powerful connection to the earth. Uh, I there's a whole series of photographs of me praying on mountains. I love to go on, I love to hike and get to the top of some mountain. And when I get to the top, uh, I would take out my prayer book and I would pray there. Uh, so that was a, a really important access point for me. Um, that wasn't necessarily what I associated with my tradition, but was a really central place that I felt alive and I felt in connection to the cosmos. And the other thing that was happening to me at that time was I was reading lots of feminist poetry <laughs> and uh, and writing. So there was a big uh, piece for me around exploring how some voices had been marginalized in this whole ancestral conversation. And at a certain point, uh, I was headed to school in social psychology, and I did some work in that area. And I wasn't very happy in that work. I was feeling a little bit too in the head for me. Uh, and not enough in the spirit and in the heart. And one night I went to sleep and I had a dream. And in my dream, I was in a bar and there was a guest of honor arriving at this cocktail party that was taking place in this bar. And the guest of honor was God. God was a massive glowing pregnant woman. And I had this amazing encounter with this glowing pregnant woman who gave me a beautiful wrought iron lantern and when I woke up, I could not remember what I was supposed to do with this lantern. And I didn't know what to do. And so I called a rabbinical school and got an application. <laughs> and that was how I got to rabbinical school. And did you tell them about your dream? I did not tell them about my dream because the rabbinical school that I chose is well known for its very intellectual, rational approach to Judaism. And had I told them about my dream, they probably would not have admitted me. Okay. Uh, but I do now tell people about my dream a lot. I, I, I encourage people to, to look at their dreams as a source of information about their lives. But at that time, it, was, uh, it wasn't exactly a secret, but I knew who not to tell. So you'd gone to rabbinical school with a dream. You'd gone to a rabbinical school that was known for its intellectual basis. How did you get on there? Because already I'm feeling that you're someone quite radical and and it doesn't sound like you went to a radical place. Why did you pick somewhere so conventional? And then how did you get on? I picked that particular school because it is known for its very high-level text study. And what I really wanted was very deep access to my ancestral tradition so that I could do with it what I wanted and needed to do with it. And so I was interested in receiving as much information and as many skills as I could get. And I knew pretty early on that I was going to do something unusual with them. I knew I was not going to be a conventional rabbi, that I really wanted to open people up to their kind of pre-rational faculties and their connection with all life. I knew I wanted to do that. I knew I wanted to include the voices of women and and. Jewish shamanic practitioners and magic workers. And I, I was excited about that, but I needed access to the text. I needed the language and I needed the history in order to be able to do that at a high level. So that was why I picked that particular place. 
And it was a little awkward for me there sometimes. I had lots of arguments with my professors. <laughs> but I also really gained a very deep understanding, I hope, of my tradition. And I'm very, very grateful uh, to that institution, even though some people there would probably never want to talk to me again. <laughs> uh, but there are other people who are really glad I was there and still reach out. Yeah. And in your dream, God was a giant, glowing, pregnant woman. And again, you're going to a place where I'm guessing that if they give the God a gender, it's probably not that one. Was that something, were you able to explore the concept of deity as as ungendered or as multi-gendered or as fluidly gendered in your training? Or is that something that you've come back to afterwards? This has been one of the great explorations and delights of my life and my career. There is a significant amount of gender diversity in the way that Jews have looked at God over time, but most people don't know about it. Interesting. In the biblical sources, God is almost exclusively male, but you can see places where that's not the case, where that didn't used to be the case. And in fact, when we look in archaeology, we can see that uh, the diversity of ways that Israelites talked about God was greater than we now think about. And later on, the Jewish mystical tradition is very comfortable speaking in terms of uh, God, he, and God, she, and talking about the presence of the divine as a feminine presence, you know, and the transcendence of the divine often as a gender neutral or masculine presence. And then talking about the interactions between those different faces of the divine. And often they'll use terms like love relationships. You know, they'll say, uh, you know, that the, the Holy one is married to the divine presence. You know, that's language that the, the mystical tradition feels very comfortable with, you know, in the way that lots of mythic traditions speak about the sacred marriage, you know, or that uh, the divine presence is like a mother to the world. You know, they, they use language like that, but it's not in the prayer book. It's not in the standard Jewish education, but it is there. And I was really lucky to be born in a generation when Jewish women and others were refinding this language and saying, is this language we could maybe use? Like, is this an experience of deity that we could maybe have too? And so that's part of the work that I do uh, is to teach about the history of the image of God as female in the Jewish tradition and how we might want to work with that image today. And it's just very exciting because when you repress an image of the divine, you are really repressing part of your experience. You're repressing a piece of your soul. Yeah. And, you know, when you say, no, I'm not going to look at God that way because that's not allowed. You know, sometimes there is a really important piece of that face of God that you needed that is then uh, hidden from you. And so unrepressing that divine face is like unrepressing a piece of ourselves. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So much I want to talk about. So two branches of this, just very briefly, do you have a sense of why that repression occurred in the first place. Is it something, because it obviously happened in Christianity, it's happened in, it's happened across 
the Caucasian cultures, and I don't know if it arose from Rome or if it arose spontaneously in different places or whether it's just the evolution of humanity for reasons that we completely don't understand required that the feminine be suppressed. But I wonder if, because of your deep insights into the ancient writings, whether you have some sense of why this happened. There's a lot of speculation about why this happened, and of course they don't tell us, so we don't really know. But one of the ways that people sometimes talk about this is that as power became consolidated in centralized institutions that were mostly run by men, you know, a divinity that had been relatively diverse became much less diverse. So this is kind of the challenge of monotheism, that on, on one, in one way, monotheism was very empowering for people because they could have kind of one relationship with, you know, they could be in dialogue with this deity um, instead of sort of watching the divine drama unfold. Uh, but it was also disempowering for certain people because as deity became more singular and more masculine, uh, really it was a reflection of monarchy, right? It was a reflection of empire. Right, we have one king. We're going to have one god who looks like a king. Yeah, and so that actually shut out human beings. Like we can see that the there was a kind of erasure of priestess history, you know, at that time. And not only, as you say, in Israelite and Jewish traditions, but really all over the ancient Near East, uh, you you begin to see the erasure of women in Greece, you know, in Rome. Uh, it, it, it's it's very prevalent across culture. And then there's a kind of an erasure of these faces of feminine divinity, except in relatively safe forms that kind of erupt uh, because people still need them. Like the Virgin Mary, for example, you know, was a face of the divine feminine that Christianity kept. Uh, and you see that in Judaism also, when they talk about the divine presence, you know, who went into exile with us and loved us and was with us, you know, there is a kind of a desire for the loving mother, but, you know, that face is always subordinated to the, the masculine king figure, right, in, you know, in these traditions. And it really is a reflection of what's happening in the human world as power is centralized and as the male genders takes takes power in in various societies, but they really miss it. They really miss the diversity, hmm. uh, and so you see it re-erupting. You know, in all of these mystical traditions, uh, that God becomes feminine in the in the minds and in the imaginations of many mystics. And the other thing that's important to tease out here is that this kind of co-occurs with the repression of the earth. Yeah. Which isn't to say that the feminine is identical with the earth, which I don't think. I think all beings are connected equally to the earth. But there is a kind of co-occurrence that the divine feminine and the sacred earth get repressed at the same time because they get dominated at the same time. And so as the feminine is being liberated and unrepressed you know, in the West in this time period, you also see this very urgent desire to reclaim the earth as a sacred place and as a sacred entity, uh, which is also really powerful and moving for me and also really necessary at this time. Because when you see the earth as a sacred being that you are in relationship with, then you don't, you know, kind of abuse her. Yes. Gosh. My concept of deity 
is distinct from my concept of the all that is. So for me, there's a sense of of the divine, of of the heart mind of the universe, of the all that is, of something that is without time, without boundary, and that is made of raw, wild compassion, but in which I can become very lost. Mm. Whereas the gods feel more like entities in and of themselves, and I can build relationship with them and through them to the all that is in a way that I suppose makes it more accessible and easier for me to have a sense of relating. I still want to go home to the all that is in my stillness, but if I want a piece of advice, I find it easier to go to a god, and I'm using that as a as a gender neutral, gender fluid, uh, gender doesn't matter. And it has always seemed to me that one of the things that happened at the point when the Abrahamic God arose was that it it segued from being a God to being the all that is. Whereas in, in Platonic times, if you read Plato or any of the old philosophers, they knew that the gods were distinct from that. And I'm, first of all, kind of impressed that a God is able to do this. But also, I wonder, do you, when you are connecting see a distinction between the kind of the deity of history mm-hmm. and the all that is that is boundless and and has no real feelings of what people wear or who they sleep with or all of the things that can get clustered onto a traditional god does that question make sense to you it absolutely makes sense to me i'm very excited to be having this conversation and i want to answer it in two ways The first thing I want to say is that the Kabbalah, which is the Jewish mystical tradition, is very aware of the question that you're raising. And the way that it answers the question is like this. For the Kabbalah, God is the all that is. That is their definition of God. God is the all that is. However, mortal beings cannot relate to the all that is. And so what happens is the divine, who is the all that is, puts forward a series of faces or a series of uh, what are called emanations or kind of protrusions that are more relatable aspects of deity. And humans use these relatable aspects of deity to be able to take in the all that is and be in relationship to it. Hmm. So just to give an example, the Kabbalah, which means the receiving, that's the name of the Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalah talks about what's called the ayin, which means the nothingness, which literally means the all that is in its unrelatable form. Right. Brilliant. Like it's so big, you can't relate to it. Okay. And this ayin begins to put forward, it's almost like waves or like a, bubbles of being that are more distinct and more uh, separate from the all that is. And they have gender, they have attributes, and a series of these waves occur, and the final one is called Shekhinah, which means presence. 
And that wave of the all that is is synonymous with the physical universe. Wow. That is, it is divinity in physical form. And that face of the divine is where I connect. You know, we often speak of her as she, Shekhinah's female. Hmm. And she is kind of entwined in the physical universe while being connected to the all that is that is more of an abstract transcendence. Right. Brilliant. And the Kabbalah understands that those two entities are sometimes out of sync and that our job is to maintain and try to strengthen the connection between the everything and the particular. Oh, gosh. So you actually have, in the Kabbalah, you have a reason for being, that humanity has a job, and that's the job. Yes, exactly. And and everything we do in this tradition either contributes to that connection or takes away from that connection. So everything we do is very, very important. Yes. Oh, wow. So my second answer is related to the elements. Because one of the languages that the Kabbalah uses for these kind of uh, concrete faces of the divine is it uses the language of elements. So the divine presence is connected to the earth and, and, you know, and there are other aspects that are connected to water and sky. And for me personally, that's been a really exciting exploration that when I need to ground, when I need to connect spiritually, and I can't jump into the cosmos, you know, immediately. That doesn't, you know, I can try, but it doesn't always work. Um, but I can connect to a concrete representation of the presence on earth. So I can pick up a stone and I can say, there is the presence in this stone. And I can be in the river and the presence is in the river. And so that's where I suspect that your and my experiences are similar. Yes, because that is so shamanic. And and you said earlier on that you had worked with shamanic Jewish teachers, and I, that's a whole thread I would really like to follow. But at the moment, so so you have a framework within which to hold a connection to the earth that has the sacred utterly woven through it. And I wonder to what extent, so two things. First of all, it strikes me that this, the Kabbalistic view where you have the all that is and the ripples of emanations and the ultimate emanation is the physical world strikes me so much as the quantum physics that we read. And I, I get very wary of New Age people quoting quantum physics that they don't really understand and, and it comes out quite quickly as pseudoscience, but I'm reading quite a lot of quantum physics written by people who are not New Agey. And it's this sounds like such an emanation. And I wonder, are there people within the Kabbalistic tradition who are making those links? I love that you're bringing this up. A couple of years ago, I took a week-long course that was taught by a Kabbalist and a physicist. It was amazing. And while being as careful as you're being right now about not kind of shading into pseudoscience, they were able to show these very beautiful parallels between what Kabbalistic text has to say about reality and what quantum physicists have to say about reality, in including that reality proceeds out of nothing, you know, and that the nothing is very pregnant with the real. Yes. So would they be, in, in terms of 
um, the philosophy of consciousness, they would be panpsychists. Would that fit with the Kabbalistic tradition? I think so. I mean, I, I can't speak for the whole tradition, but but I think so because they have the idea that all layers of being are alive. Right, so people are alive, and plants are alive, and stones are alive in the way that stones are alive. Yeah. You know, and they're all part of this unfolding divine presence. So I think that label makes sense. This is really exciting. And so when you're talking to shamanic Jewish practitioners, but there seems to be so much crossover. What what I don't have in my practice is a, a written tradition relating to the Middle East because I didn't grow up in the Middle East, and I, and we don't have a written tradition that leads us back to who we were 2,000 years ago. But other than that, so I don't have the kind of cultural connections to a particular way of looking at the divine. This sounds an extraordinarily shamanic practice. And I'm guessing that you have found that in talking to Jewish, the fact that there are Jewish shamanic practitioners suggests that this is the case. Yes. There are really two kinds of Jewish shamanic practitioners, and they overlap in all kinds of ways. But one kind is people who have gone very deeply into the Jewish tradition and said, where can I find Jewish technologies for being in touch with all being? And so they read the sources, you know, or they study with teachers, and then they are speaking in a contemporary language about how to do that. Mm. And then there are other practitioners who have really gone to other traditions, right, who studied in Ecuador, right, or in India, and, you know, absorbed those traditions, and then sometimes end up reconnecting to their ancestral tradition uh, once they're, you know, this portal is alive for them. So those are, uh, you know, those are two kinds of individuals that I know about, mm. you know, and when I'm using the word shamanic, you know, I know that we're both aware that this is a borrowed term, right? And, you know, each culture has its own um, words for that. Yes. But just to give a little historical context, uh, I was told by a historian that in the, you know, in the 18th century, uh, in little Jewish villages, you know, in Russia, uh, you would hire a rabbi who would be there to tell you how to practice and to give the Jewish law on various topics. And then you would hire what was called a Baal Shem, which means a master of the name. Oh, fantastic. Who would do the magic, right? Who, who would do the channeling, who would tell you, you know, what problems you had in your past lives and how to fix them, you know, like that kind of thing. Oh, interesting. That's so like, I, I read recently that until Henry VIII destroyed Catholicism in Britain, the Archbishop of Canterbury employed a geomancer. Wow. And I thought one day, if, if time allowed, I would like to find out the story of the last geomancer and write it because, my goodness, you know, and, and then we lost all of that when Protestantism just kind of crushed everything. And we lost all of that too. Yeah. Because, you know, the Holocaust wiped out lots and lots of folk tradition. Yeah, right. Because the, the text made it, right? The books made it. But everything that wasn't in the books, you know, a lot of things were destroyed. Yeah. And, um, you know, are just sort of, you know, we're just beginning to piece back together what was lost. And then there was a big exodus from North Africa in the last three generations. That was also a big loss of culture. And particularly when you have these big cataclysms or migrations, 
it particularly affects women because in the Jewish tradition, women's stuff doesn't get written down. Right. Yes. And across the world, that has been in every Aboriginal first people's tradition. The anthropologists were men and they did not talk to the women or the women didn't talk to them. It's, yeah, there's so much has been lost. And even in the transition to America, a lot of stuff got lost. And so now a lot of American Jews are, are like, why is our tradition boring? You know, like, where, where did all the good stuff go? And so there is this real reclamation of all of this powerful stuff. Right, right. Because it's in villages in Russia and and you have to go back and find it or right. or North Africa or, or wherever, my goodness. So I, I want to go back to Dreamy. I want to look at the book that you're writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we go there, just for my own curiosity, Accidental Gods is about the sense that we are on the brink of conscious evolution and that it is possible. And I wonder if there is anything, it sounds like there's so much of a movement within what you're doing to reframe things, to look at things, to see how we might go forward. Is that anywhere alive in the work that you're doing at the moment as a concept? Mm. What I want to say about this is that there is a Jewish view of redemption, what we would call uh, the messianic era or Mashiach, right? That's the the kind of mythical end time, right? When things will be different, Hmm. right? When we will have transcended death and we will have transcended evil, you know, and sort of this, you know, mythical time. And I don't know about all that, but there is this idea that as we become more identified not just with our own personal egos, but with the presence as a whole, that more things become possible, right? That um, there, there's more healing and there's more what is called tikkun, which means repair. There's more repair of the things that are broken in the world. And, you know, there is a way that I went away from that tradition because I felt like I didn't want to allow people to project themselves into a, a, you know, a, a coming world that would be perfect and not deal with the world that is. Yeah. And part of what has been so inspiring to me about encountering your work is a sort of reapproach of, well, what could this mean? You know, how could we become different? Because as, you know, as you often uh, speak about, you know, this is a time of such radical importance, you know, what we do now matters so much. And it does feel like, there's some unique portal that we are being invited into at this point in uh, in our history and our evolution, and I'm really excited about connecting with other practitioners who want to be part of that. Yeah, I have I have visions of a conference when we when we're done talking to everybody, we just get everyone together, even if it's online, so that people are not flying, and get a chance to get everybody talking to everybody else. I think it would be so exciting. Because I'm thinking with the Kabbalah that you were talking about, the Kabbalistic work of this sense of giving humanity a reason to exist. Because that's often, I was listening to Yuval Noah Harari and and various others, the really deep thinkers of now, and they're going, before you can go forward, you have to know why we are here. And and that became part of my quest of why are we here? Okay, so conscious evolution could be it. But it sounds like in the Kabbalah tradition, you were already there. You had the understanding of why we are here and where we could go. So it feels like quite a small step to go from that to then. This idea of the end times, I've been reading Neil Donald Walsh, who has written something called Conversations with God. And it's very 
20th century American in many ways, but that doesn't mean it's all wrong. And one of the things is his sense of the awakening of humanity is that we understand that death is not an ending and we understand that we are all one. And this has been said since Buddhist times. It's not even 2,000 years, it's more like 5,000 years, probably forever, that we do know this. The ancient Celts, one of the things that Caesar wrote was that they view death as putting down one shirt and putting on another. It wasn't the big deal that we make it. And once death isn't the big deal that we make it, then that sense of having to keep hold of stuff becomes less. The whole of the structures around which our economy and our culture arise begin to melt away. And I think that sounds very like your messianic end times. If we could achieve that, it would be very interesting. Wait. I say something about what you just said? So I wanted to say something about, you know, one of the uh, important pieces of the work that I do is is called the Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute, uh, which is a, a, a training program that I co-founded with uh, Taya Shear, uh, Taya Ma Shear, who is uh, my collaborator in this. And we've been training uh, women and uh, sort of female identified folk for uh, a number of years now, I guess, 13 or 14 years now, uh, in uh, a, a priestess model of Jewish uh, sacred service uh, that is based in, you know, a number of these sources that we've been talking about together. And dreaming is a really important piece of that. But one thing that is common to our community, although we are a pluralistic community, different people believe and practice in different ways, but one thing that's really common is the sense that the ancestors are very present for us, right? And, you know, we don't think of them as gone. You know, we think of them as allies in the spiritual work that we do. And it does really make life different to think about it that way, you know, because there isn't this sort of massive denial around death. And that also allows for other views of the sacred, because, you know, if death is terrifying, right, then everything that is sacred has to not change, right? It has to never die. And when you have, you know, a, a cyclical view of life and death, then, you know, deity also goes through changes and rhythms and we go through them and, you know, and the universe goes through them and that's part of how things are. And it's a much more realistic view with which to face the world that we're now living in. Isn't it just? Yes. And are you finding in your institute, and, and thank you, that was my next question, was tell us more about this, and I didn't pronounce it right in my introduction. I may re-record that. Are you finding that the awareness of the climate and ecological emergency is changing the way that people practice and the way that they approach the divine? Absolutely. There is a real sense of the urgency of the work right now, that we need to transform the ways that we think about the world, that we pray, that we do activism, that we relate to one another, that this is all of utmost importance. So I really see the way that uh, the priestesses that I am training are so dedicated to their work and to their practice because they see how important it is and the, and the change that they can be making. But also, um, you know, there is this sense that when we uh, talk about um, sort of the ancient uh, ways of tending the sacred um, in the Jewish and earlier the Israelite traditions, uh, we talk a lot about portal. We talk a lot about the ways that uh, people who work with the sacred are there to help people enter uh, 
the connection, sort of the the gateway between divine and human. And there is this sense that this is this time is portal space for human beings. You know that we are either going to figure this out and you know reconnect to our origin and our source and our life force in a massive way, or we're not going to make it. Right. So that needs spirit workers, like just to be there with everybody, because people need witness and they need support and they need uh, a sense of meaning in order to face these times. And we have a, we can do that in some ways better than traditional practitioners who are all about uh, kind of passing on you know these traditions as if you know nothing's going to change. Um, we you know there, there is there are, there are things that need to change right now. Yes, and are they being heard? Because obviously you're training people who work together and and share ideas in what must be an extraordinary fertile pot, I suppose, I'm thinking of a cauldron, and then they go out into the world. And are they being heard out in the world? Yes. Yay. This has been remarkable for me. Because when I founded, co-founded this institute, the deal that I made with myself in my own consciousness was, if this is only ever 15 women in the woods, that's fine. You know, that's fine. That will be enough. We will support each other and that will be great. And what I've seen is that each of these uh, ordinees goes out into the world and does amazing stuff. Wow. You know, some of them are uh, bringing a ritual called the climate ribbon all over the world where people um, uh, do a ritual around what they want to save about our planet. Uh, some of them are you know, doing you know, important interfaith work. A bunch of them were Standing Rock. Right. You know, some of them are in England, you know, creating, you know, a priestessing community in, in, in London. They are really, really making an impact. And I wouldn't say that we're mainstream. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But we are definitely on the map of the Jewish world in a way that I did not think we would ever be. Wow. And that's very special for me. Yes. And for the world. That's so amazing. That I would love to hear more about the, the climate ribbon. That sounds extraordinary. I am aware that we're moving out of time, and I really want to talk about your book, um, because I've had the privilege to read some of it. And it's a dreaming book. You've brought dreaming into the 21st century. You've gathered dreams, and you've helped people to enhance their lives through dreaming. Do you want to tell us about it? I do. So I'm in the process of writing a few books now, and one of them is on mysticism, but the other one, as you mentioned, is on dreams. And for me in my personal priestess practice, dreams are the way that I continue to connect to the divine. There are, there are a number of ways, but one of them is dreaming. I really believe that when we're asleep, the all can speak to us in ways that it can't necessarily speak to us when we're awake. Yes. Because when we're dreaming, there there are images that don't make sense to us, right? And But that expand our view of what is, right? That we can see something in a dream that we couldn't really see in the waking world, right? Some of us can, can vision in the waking world, but, you know, for most of us, you know, we're walking around, uh, you know, looking at mundane reality, but there's always this spiritual connection operating. And in our dreams, we can actually see that, like the, the connection is visible. I'll just give one example of a recent dream that I had where I'm, I'm taking care of this turtle 
right? And like this turtle has sort of showed up in my house and I'm caring for this turtle. And then I take the turtle outside and the turtle like goes into the stream near my house and begins to flow down the, the stream and goes over these little waterfalls and I'm running after it and, you know, wanting to sort of take care of it and make sure it's okay. And then I see that I'm just not going to be able to catch the turtle. You know, and it just goes over the, the falls and over the falls and then it's gone. Mm. And it's like I'm seeing the life force, right, in a, in a physical way that I, I wouldn't necessarily see in, in waking life. Gosh. And, and you live on Turtle Island. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> in fact, the turtle is kind of a, kind of a totem for the, for the Kohenet. I know that that's not the right word, but, you know, the turtle shows up as an ally for the Kohenet uh, community a lot. Wow. Goodness, isn't and so when you're teaching, do you teach your students specific dreaming practices, or simply to watch the dreams that arise? The Kohenet community teaches dream practice as one of the core practices of our community, and the way that we practice dreaming uh, is first of all we have what's called a, a dream chavruta, which means a study partner, a dream partner that we share our dreams with. And we invite people to find somebody to share dreams with. And also we have a collective um, dreaming practice, um, uh, which is uh, very similar to the dreaming practice of Robert Moss. Right. Uh, where essentially we're gathering in community and we are hearing a dream that someone feels is important to share. And then each person shares their dream of that dream. Uh, everyone who wants to, you know, has a sense of what the healing in the dream might be or what the dream might mean. Yeah. Um, and there is a way that each dream is only for the person who dreams it. But there's another way that the dream is for the whole community. Yeah. So one person might dream something, right? And then um, the whole community uh, is benefited by that dream, is given a blessing from that dream. I'll just give a really brief example since we were talking about turtles. Um, that early in the program, uh, one of our uh, students dreamed of a, a dead turtle's head, but there was a seed inside the turtle's mouth. Wow. And it was just the most extraordinary image of, right, here is this, you know, sort of life that, you know, seems, you know, it seems not there, and but but the life is hidden inside it. And that was really a dream for the whole community. Yeah. Um, yes. Once uh, one of my students dreamed that she was, uh, she had come to talk with me because there was um, a blockage between the worlds. And I got out my big maps and I looked at the world sort of in its uh, abstract form. And I said, yes, I can see it. You should go get it. And she went into that layer of reality and discovered that there was this person who was sort of stuck in the, in the space between the worlds and kind of uh, blocking everything. You know, and she, you know, set about trying to remove this blockage. Uh, and to me, it was such a concrete seeing of what we're actually trying to do. Yes. Gosh, we could talk about dreaming forever. And I think, I'm assuming you find, as we find, that the more a community or a circle dreams together, the more the dreams begin to have resonance for everyone in the circle. You end up with a fractal effect where it, it is an individual's dream, but it is also a dream for the greater whole. Yes. Interesting. Gosh, I think I am very aware that you have a daughter who needs you and that we've probably kept you longer than you anticipated. I would really love to book a follow-up and perhaps I actually would like you to come to England and for us to run some courses, but that's 
a ways off. But as we're beginning to close, is there anything that I haven't asked that I should have asked that you think would be pertinent to our conversation just now? Um, I would like to say two things. I would like to say something about um, dream practice that I want to invite um, into people's lives. And I want to say something about my other book. Would those two things be okay? Yes, I have just written on my notes, I want to read your mysticism book. Yes, (laughs) please, both of those. So one of my dream practices, which is the one that I I bring to people that I work with privately, uh, has to do with uh, connecting to the earth and to the elements. So when I dream and when other people who are in my orbit dream, I invite them to look at the relationships that they see between people, but I also invite them to look at the relationships that they see between them and the earth in the dream. So if there's water in the dream, if there's a stone in the dream, if there's fire in the dream, I am, I'm watching how is that uh, entity uh, affecting them. So sometimes uh, people who come to me have dreamed about bears, even though they don't actually have bears in their waking life, but, you know, they dream about bears. You know, when we talk about bears as the, as the earth spirit, you know, as, the way, as a way that uh, the earth manifests its, uh, its presence uh, to us. Um, or if someone dreams of immersing in water, you know, we might talk about, well, how might that direct you back into the world where you could create a spiritual relationship with water that would be nourishing and healing for you. Right. Uh, so that's an important piece of my dream work that I like to share because it's a little bit different than um, some of the ways that Jews have worked with dreams in the past. And uh, I find it really fruitful uh, because it takes the dream seriously as a landscape yeah. that's offering itself to us, you know, and it directs us back into the world. Yeah, and it honors the elements. Yes. Um, which is so important and gives them gives them voice and yeah. And such a big part of your work too. Yes, I was thinking for those in our membership program, it's it, that will definitely resonate. That sense of giving agency to those things that touch us every day, but that we take for granted until we begin to really develop a relationship. Thank you. So, and a little bit about your other book. That sounds really exciting. I want to read it. So this is also connected to the elemental work because there is a, a little known but a very important Jewish book of mysticism that happens before, that's written before the kind of classical Kabbalah. It's really a pre-Kabbalistic work. And it's called the Book of Creation or Sefer Yetzirah. It's a very short book. Most Jewish books are very long. This is a very short book. It's a, it's a story, or really it's almost like a spell. It's really written as a kind of a, a narrative that is spoken that describes the creation of the world. And each letter of the Hebrew alphabet brings uh, a piece of the creation to life. And some of the letters represent elements. So the three letters, the Aleph, the Mem, and the Shin, which make a an ah or a kind of silent sound, um, a m sound and a sh sound, those letters are uh, air, water, and fire. Wow. And those letters are combined to create the basic structures of the world. Wow. So part of the book is about how this particular version of Jewish mysticism sort of looks at creation as you know, uh, basically an incantation that God is constantly reciting and adding to. And uh, the elements as an important piece 
of our connection to the divine, you know, via the physical world. Uh, so the book is a commentary and also a guide to practice using this ancient book. And it's called Return to the Place, uh, The Magic Meditation and Mystery of Sefer Yetzirah. Uh, and uh, I'm, it, it is at the publisher. It should be out within the year. And I'm very excited. <gasps> Yay. So when it comes out, we'll definitely have you back on again to talk about it. That would be fantastic. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. This has been amazing. It really has. I really enjoyed it. And I, I hope to goodness that the sound is okay because it's been really quite patchy at my end, but I'm hoping that the wonder of modern technology has picked it up. Um, I will send it off to the sound engineers and we'll find out. But thank you so, so much for your time and your wisdom and and the joy of being in your company. I am really looking forward to, yeah, to having another talk with you, but also somehow to making sure that we can be in the same place at the same time, somehow, somewhen. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It has been a delight talking to you. There are other people also who want me to come to England, so we're going to make this happen. And I'm very, very uh, grateful uh, for your offering this conversation and for your work in the world, and I look forward to more. So, enormous thanks to Rabbi Jill for her time, her wisdom, and her insight. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We'll be back next time with somebody else who's on the cutting edge of whatever it takes to create conscious evolution. But in the meantime, thanks to Caro C., for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for the web design and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. And thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, five stars and a review on the podcast app of your choice helps to get us known. But more than that, tell your friends, share the link, tell anybody that you think wants to help us move towards conscious evolution. If you want to know more, to read the show notes, or to join the membership program, we're at accidentalgods.life on the web, and the same on various social media. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, have a good week. Thank you, and goodbye.